Hello and welcome to Lore Watch, a roundtable freeform discussion about lore in the games of Blizzard Entertainment. I am your host, Joe Perez, one of several lore-focused folks from Blizzard Watch, and I've got my marvelous co-host with me today, Matt Rossi. How are you doing today, Matt? I I am ready. <laughs> uh, in jokes. In jokes. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. Uh, so we're going to be doing some questions from you, our listeners, today, and I want to thank you very much for sending those in. Again, if you have questions for this or the other podcast or for the queue, uh, I mean, give them to us. We have a Discord channel for it. Literally, it's dedicated. It's set aside for it. Uh, and if you want to send them email in you can send for the podcasts, you can send it to podcast at blizzardwatch.com. Just make sure you specify which podcast it is for. Otherwise, I will try to steal them all so that Rossi can't use any of them on Tuesday. Our first up, Akamagash Watchers. With the recent discovery of the Scarlet Crusade propaganda books, what can this mean moving forward? A supposed secret child heir to the throne of Lordaeron could make for interesting story. Bonus question, how is the Scarlet Crusade even still kicking? Thanks, Gold Grip. You always have to remember when dealing with stuff like an organization in-game that the people you see are just a small part of it. Uh, you don't get to see every single member. Even when you go to the Scarlet Monastery or fight them in Northrend, that's just a small part. It's a subsection. By necessity. They can't They can't actually sit there and give you absolutely every single member of the Scarlet Crusade so that you can kill them all and then they're all really gone. Uh, it's just it's not in the nature of the game. There's towns that exist in, in Azeroth that we never see. There's places that even though we travel across the place, we don't go to them because they're not in the game, but they exist in the game's fiction. Um, you'll, you'll note, here's one example. Uh, you go to Gilneas and you end up going to lots of places in Gilneas, and yet when you go there as a rogue, suddenly you're going to other places for the rogue quest. And it's not that those places are new. They're parts of the area. They're just not parts that you had any particular reason to go to before. Um, that's true for everything. World of Warcraft is not meant to be a one-to-one representation of the world of Azeroth with all the people exactly as it is. It's a game. Um, so, in terms of how the Scarlet Crusade can still be a thing, it can still be a thing because some people survived and recruited. Um, just the places that we knew about are just some of the places where the Scarlets... There are Scarlets all over the Plaguelands. Um, that's actually pretty clear if you if you go back and read... Ashbringer, the comic, you can see that when they were first recruiting, they were they were making strongholds, and we saw them lose one, but just because they lost Hearthland doesn't mean they lost everything. That's actually be interesting to see if you know what the current state of the Scarlets versus the uh, the Argent Crusade is, because with Tyrion Fordring dead, the Argent Crusade's in a different place, and then the with the Paladin Order shake up. Uh, a lot of people might have left the Argent Crusade because they didn't want to be in an organization with the Horde. Yeah, which is you know? very true. I mean, there's there's lots of stuff to it. That's you know, it's quite easy to imagine that there's still Scarlets kicking. Granted, they got a serious shellacking from Lillian Voss. Uh, she definitely hurt them, but that doesn't mean they were destroyed. Well, and, and the interesting thing here is, especially when you take into consideration the propaganda books, did you take a, have you seen seen them? Have you looked through them yet? Yeah, I was actually going to write that article, but then uh, Red got to it before I did, so I was like, meh. <laughs> I'm going to uh, get you, Red, when you're sleeping. Apparently, we now have a rivalry. Okay. Uh, I find it interesting because it's it's essentially exactly what you're describing, right? It's this whole idea of... If you don't get everybody, if there's at least one person that holds that ideal behind and, and that was a fanatical organization, it really, truly was the Scarlet Crusade. If there's one person left to recruit, they can start trying to you know, pull from everywhere and they're doing exactly what you would expect, at least in these books. And if you haven't seen them in game, if you haven't found them, uh, there are, I believe, three books. There's the Traitor King, the Would-Be Queen, uh, the Cursed Wolf, sorry, and the Last Menethil. And it's basically a whole propaganda series about how uh, the current king of Stormwind, in this case Anduin Wren, is a traitor. 
He's evil. He is conspiring with all of the things that are evil and horrible in this world, and that's why things have happened so terribly. Uh, they blame him for the failed meeting uh, between the folks from the Undercity and the folks from Stormwind. Uh, they blame him as it was a, a conspiracy between him and the Banshee Queen to kill Kalia. And now there's also another one where he plans to marry the now not quite undead or not quite alive Kalia so that he can secure his right to the the Menethil throne, to the throne of Lauderon. Uh, it's an interesting set of, of texts because that's exactly the type of thing disenfranchised people would latch onto as far as in this world. Like, think about it. They've just gone through all of these wars back to back to back to back. The people of, of Stormwind have suffered greatly uh, numerous times. And here's a, a king who he's young. He doesn't really know what he's doing. I mean, whether you love or hate Anduin, he's he's made a whole lot of mistakes. And now it's starting to give excuse. And yes, it's a conspiracy theory. Yes, it's if you look at it objectively, it's way out in left field. But if you're a transplant from Lordaeron who loved King Menethil, felt horrible about what happened, you know, there and the betrayal of his, you know, undead son, essentially claiming his soul and shoving it into a sword. Uh, and then his sister, who was destined to le lead the people because she was pure, she was holy, she was a priest, she she channeled the light, she was absolutely perfect and flawless in, in the people's minds because she wasn't allowed to be less than flawless. It's something that those people can latch on to and be like, yeah, our lives would be totally different if this was this is how it went out, or this makes total sense. This is why I'm miserable. This is why I'm suffering. This is, you know, I can now put my blame on someone and try to hold them accountable. And I find that real interesting because it definitely parallels real life a lot. But in game context, that means that the Scarlet Crusade could potentially become more, more dangerous than anticipated. Uh, especially coming up? What if they're recruiting and they're doing Defias-style tactics where they're recruiting in plain sight? They're getting these people, these commoners, uh, to sort of buy into this propaganda because it makes more sense than the cosmic flow of time and space and beings greater than me are conspiring to, to do battle, and this is just fallout from it, which is what it is. But if you're a farmer, you don't really care. You want to be able to have somebody who can be held accountable for it. You want to be somebody who can be taken to task. You want to have something that you can feel you can do or act against to make your lot better or to improve what's happening to you. And we saw it with the Defias, and we're starting to see it with the Scarlet Crusade. And it's almost like a merging of those two uh, those two identities, right? Like it's that, that fanaticism and then that weird propaganda recruiting. I think it's brilliant, honestly, and I think it's going to open them up to be a a potential major villain in the future again, and I think it's going to have that lovely thing where it starts to revolve around Kalia, which we've been asking what's going to happen with Kalia, what's going to happen with her sort of taking over the Forsaken, what's going to happen in regards to it. Now we have to worry about the complication of the Scarlet Crusade because they're not too far from where Lordaeron was, right? Their their monastery, their their the the everything that they've had set up uh, aside from Northrend, they could easily start that back up. And if Lordaeron's ever reclaimed or cleared out for whatever you know, if they figure out a way to do it, that's right there. That could be more tension. That could be another major plot point. And it's something I don't think I had considered before seeing these books. Is what if the Scarlet Crusade came back? What if they weren't completely stamped out? And what would that mean as being like a villainous force or a force of opposition? I wouldn't even call them villainous uh, in Azeroth. I call them villainous. They're straight up, you know, zealous, zealous racists. Thank you, Sirens, I'd say. Um, <laughs> the, the thing about the Scarlet Crusade is they will burn down your house if they think you have anything to do with the Forsaken, whether or not you do. You could just be a, like a lonely old farmer in the middle of nowhere who managed to hold on when all this stuff went down. You're still just keeping your farm, doing your business, not my, not bothering anybody. They come there and they're like, you know, you know, give us everything you've got to help fight off the undead. And you're like, I don't have anything. I've got a couple chickens. They could burn down your house just because they suspect you. 
and they have done so. So yeah, I'm, I'm totally down with calling them villains. Just sure. because they don't like something I don't like doesn't make them good people. Oh, and I, they're definitely and, not good people. And it's interesting because this is not a change. They've always been exactly. awful. The, they back in the day, if you go back and look at WoW Classic, they they used to recruit. Um, the Scarlet Crusade used to recruit at like Nigel's Point mm-hmm. of all places in Desolus. There was a Scarlet Crusade recruiter right there in Nigel's Point, and he was recruiting to go, you know, go into uh, Scarlet Monastery, and because there was a whole bunch of undead invading it. But when you actually ended up going there, uh, it ended up being really creepy, and you ended up having to fight the Scarlets. That was the original intro. Uh, when you fought Herod for the first time, all that stuff. That was back in the day. That was how you you met the the Scarlets if you were Alliance. Horde didn't need an excuse because they didn't just go after Forsaken. Literally any Horde who got anywhere near them, they attacked. Um, oh yeah, so, that, that and that's that's present here in the books too, where they talk about yeah. you know pure human pure human blood, and that's it. Like that's all that they want to to be on the planet. Yeah. So. And I mean, if if you know about their origins with like the Abendus and Brigitte Abendus and all of those people, uh, it's not surprising. But it's interesting because, from us as players, this is ridiculous, right? Sure. The idea that Anduin is actually in love with Sylvanas, or and that he and Sylvanas are working together, and that Kali they made Kali and Undead together, that that's you know. But I mean, if you're if you're I don't want to compare it too much to real life events, but we've seen this in real life. So it's actually we a, it's a pretty brilliant take on the conspiracy theory where you, you take the events and you just describe any meaning you want to them. The, so that's interesting in and of itself. It's also interesting that people have already asked about this straight up. I do not think there is a, a, a missing Menethil heir. No, but it seems like they're laying the groundworks to present somebody as if they were. Yeah, which this is actually has this has happened repeatedly throughout history. Oh yeah. Um, uh, if you want to talk about Richard the uh, Third, you know when when he went down, there were like the, he had the two princes. He'd killed them, and then pretenders began popping up. Henry the the Seventh's wife was a member of the York bloodline, and she was constantly forced to deal with the idea that oh, these people who are claiming to your brothers are here. And, you know, the Henry VIII, it's a, one of the books I have, it's the autobiography of Henry VIII. It's a fictional book. But one of the points it makes is that, you know, Henry saw his mother often, she went down to look at the bodies after the rebellion had been put down and to make sure they weren't her brothers. That it, they were pretenders. They were saying they were. And, you know, this is something that's, sometimes the pretenders really are the people they say they are, too. That's the other thing. So they, if they wanted to, they could break out Kalia's kid. And he could yeah. well have been raised by the Scarlets, and he could be like an implacable foe. And we know um, that she did have a kid. We just assume, mm-hmm, yep. we're just making the assumption that her kid's dead, right? Yeah, the assumption know, is that her know. kid and her son. I mean, some fan theories is that it was Balvar and that the kid is Talia. Um, that's a fan theory. That's not something I'm suggesting is true. But my point is just that it hasn't been established in game one or the other. We know that she did have a kid, and that's all we know. Uh, it is assumed that the child is dead. It's possible that the Scarlets have it, or her. They say him in their little pamphlets, though. So if they have the child, the child is a he. Um, it's just it is an interesting way to go with it. It definitely doesn't feel like something that's going to pay off in Shadowlands, but that's fine because there's always a need for more stuff for down the road. And so I have no problem with that. And we've talked about that. We've talked about that about laying the seeds for things two, three expansions down the road. Uh, so, like, this doesn't have to be an immediate payoff. They could start laying the groundwork, and there can be little things here and there. Uh, there could be sightings of, you know, Scar- Scarlet Crusade recruiters, little tiny things that don't necessarily have a payoff in Shadowlands, but maybe the expansion after that or the one after that. We don't know. But I like this idea of starting to lay that groundwork. And I also really like the idea of there being a little more political court intrigue in the game. I know that doesn't probably make a whole lot of sense to some folks, but it's something that I really, really like when they do it well. Uh, Like even the little mystery encounter in, I can't remember that dungeon, uh, the one where you, why can't I think of the name of it? It's the the Nightborn dungeon. 
where you go to the masquerade. Court of, seven, the court of stars. Court of stars. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Thank you. So in like in the court of stars, where you're like interviewing folks and like playing a game of court intrigue, and and I really liked it. I thought it was well done. It was fun. It was. It felt very much like a D and D game to me. And I like when they do stuff like that. Here, it's almost like they're laying the groundworks for you know the man in the iron mask. If you know something along those lines, where who knows what they're going to do if they're going to present an heir or if they're going to do something, you know, despicable to Kalia or, you know, if Anduin's going to be the, the prime target. And I find it very, very interesting because we're already starting to see other aspects that sort of blend into that as well with the whole not everybody in the Alliance is unified anymore. Not everybody is happy with what Anduin's doing they all have their own opinions on how the horde should have been dealt with and and how everything should play out and seeing that splintering generate something like this makes it feel more living like more immersive and i kind of really like that i like that they're they're doing something like this. and i hope that it's not just a throwaway i hope that this is laying the groundwork for something because i personally would like to see the scarlet crusade come back as a villain i really would Anything else before we move on? No, I think that pretty much covers it. All right. Uh, our next question. Hello, Lorewatch. I am a Draenei Resto Shaman, and I really love what you all do with this show. Well, thank you. Uh, my question is, in hyping up for Shadowlands, I'm struggling to decide what a good covenant would fit my shaman. Most say just to take Ardenweald, but that feels more druid than anything else. Can you help me uh, help me figure out in a lore-wise way what might fit my Draenei Shaman? Thank you. Uh, Shaman Gobes? I hope I pronounced that right. Sham Gobes? I don't know. What do you think? You've you've spent some time in the game with at least one of the Covenants. I think Shaman Gobes was the pronunciation. All right. <laughs> but what do you think of the Covenants? What do you think fits a Shaman? Um, I mean, granted, we've only seen a couple. I mean, really seen them. I would actually... I'm. I really feel like the Kyrian work for any... Draenei. Like the Draenei mm -hmm. almost it almost feels like it's too good for Draenei. Like it's like you'd be suspicious because it's so close to how you think about the world. Like the whole being a servant of a greater thing, the whole you know, ascending through struggle and service to others. It's it's a very Draenei thing. Um and certainly the aesthetic works really well for Draenei, even Draenei Shaman. And I understand that as a shaman you're a little different than other Draenei, but nevertheless the aesthetic works pretty well with all the glowingness and the, the clean and severe angles. Um, however, I'm going to say I do think Ardenweald does work for Shaman as well as it does for, for Druids because it's all about re returning from dead. It's about recycling the world in a way. And it does feel very shamanic, specifically the ancestor worship aspect of shamanism. Um it, that idea that you know you learn from and serve those that came before you, and Ardenweald is all about returning to the world. I mean, it, it you're it very you know the way that shaman actually do shaman can literally just pop up, like I'm not dying yet. It, it feels very similar. Like it, it feels like it's got a connection to shamanism. So I don't I don't think it's as as simple as this is druidy only let druids do it. I definitely think Ardenweald has druidic resonance, but I do think it's got something to offer to shaman and even to other classes that are not even remotely like those classes. Uh, that being said, though, I do think the Carrion is a really good idea for, for a Draenei from a role-playing perspective. I, I know at least one of my Draenei is probably going to go Carrion. Um, but <sighs> there's nothing wrong with playing against type either. Mm -hmm. Like, if you like Maldraxxus or you like the Revendreth, don't don't let the idea that it's not in your wheelhouse stop you. There's something to be said for the idea of as a shaman coming into a situation and going, "Ooh, okay, this is messed up. Y'all are vampires." <sighs> Whatever. You know what I mean? There, there's a way. There's don't don't let any of it hold you back. But I do think the Kyrian, I'm going to recommend you at least give the Kyrian a look, purely from a role playing perspective. I'm not talking about their covenant abilities. I, quite frankly, I don't know what their covenant abilities are. Um, I'm a terrible World of Warcraft reporter because I have like, I have been making all my decisions based on role playing, and I have not even looked at the like the stat bonuses or the weapon, the abilities you get or what have you. I just straight up go, cool angel people. So yeah, that's my that's what I would say about that. 
So I have a bunch of complicated feels on this one since I am also a Restoration Shaman as a main. Uh, so shout outs to Restoration Shaman out there all, everywhere. I I honestly think you could justify or make any of them work. Kyrian and uh, Arden, the Bastion and, and, and Ardenwell make the most sense. The Kyrian and the, the Night Fae tend to be the most, like, immediately or obviously aligned, right? Uh, Kyrian are all about order and, and purposeful. That's about folks that have devoted their life to service uh, and continue to do so. And that's very much like the idea of a restoration shaman. They're very much, you know, service to their people, keeping service to their ancestors, keeping their people alive and healthy and, and, and doing everything there. Uh, Arden Wild is all about embracing sort of that that cycle of life and and death and that natural sort of um, the order of things as far as like the nature is concerned and the way that shaman sort of talk with the elements work with the elements which are all present in nature uh, and the way that they sort of revere their ancestors and call upon their ancestors for protection and guidance and and in several cases healing that makes perfect sense as well. But then you can also look at stuff like the Necrolords, right? They are sort of the military of the Shadowlands. They, they're they protecting the Shadowlands from external forces. Uh, that they're basically, they, they're there to, as like power and purposeful and militarily. And that's something we've actually seen Shaman do before, whether it was Dark Shaman or... Uh, other folks, uh, there's always been, at least recently, a case for shaman in a military standpoint. They always need healers. They always need people putting the front line back together or, you know, taking care of the wounded. And there's something to be said about that sort of strength of, of mental and emotional fortitude that is meant to be uh, sort of that Maldraxxus mentality. That could very easily be justifiable to a shaman if you're sitting there, you want to be a protector, but you're a healer. So what do you do? You find those that are going to be on the front line fighting and you support them. I could see that fitting as well. Uh, the Venethyr are maybe probably the farthest out uh, simply because uh, that's really Revendreth is about souls weighed down by the burden of their flaws, pride, rapaciousness, greed, apathy. But that greed portion is what stands out to me. Goblin shaman are very much transactional. Goblin shaman exist. And everything we know about how they deal with being a shaman in any capacity is all about greed. It's all about sort of like, I don't want to say like it's it's almost like an apathy to the elements. They can call upon them. They make bargains and deals, but it's not because they revere the spirits. It's not because they revere the elements. It's because it's a beneficial transaction to them. I could absolutely see goblin shaman fitting into this, but that doesn't mean only goblins. We've seen other shamans that have dealt with the elements in transactional methods. I could absolutely see other shaman from other races fitting into it. But from a Drenai standpoint, I would agree ultimately that your two best options from a lore standpoint would probably be either the Kyrian or the Night Fae uh, to sort of have your covenant with. They make the most logical sense, but you could justify any of them. All right. Uh, our next question. Hi, guys. Uh, this is sort of a weird one, but I, I thought it was fun, so I wanted to throw it in here. Uh, I just paid too much gold for Invincible on the black market auction house, so you may already know this. Did you ever notice that invincible that the invincible mount has a slight kick to its left on the rear left hoof? I believe this is an obvious nod to how it died in Christy Golden's book, Arthas. Uh, to see it, keep the camera behind the mount uh, and keep your eye on the rear left hoof, then jump off a small hill like three or five feet high. Thanks for the show. Uh, best regards, Chris, uh, who's also Starhammer, Knight of the Silverhand on Realm Magtheranon. I have the mount. I had not noticed. I mean, yeah, and I haven't had a chance to go online since this email came through, so I haven't checked. But to be honest, it's not a mount I ride very often. Um, I got it by accident. I didn't even really want it. <laughs> I feel like a uh, jerk saying that because I know people are like, you know, I've been following you for four years. I'm like, yeah, dude, talk to me when you get my shoulders. Well, right, everyone got my shoulders before I did. <laughs> but no, seriously, I, I did not notice if that's the case. It's really cool. Uh, I'd have to log on and check, but, you know, that's neat. I, I don't have a lot else to say about it. Uh, 
Uh, I actually hadn't noticed that either, but I think it is, like you said, a very obvious nod to the book um, and the manner in which Invincible dies, uh, which eh, I forgot exactly the manner of its death. Didn't it like fall and snap its neck? Arthas was riding it and he broke its leg. He was being he was being arrogant and not paying attention to That's the right. conditions. Yeah. So it, it was his fault and he even admitted as much. That's why when he becomes the you know, the servant of the Lich King, he goes and raises it from the the dead to be his mount because he's feeling all sentimental. I mean he he praises, you know, now I am I will do things perfectly. But you know what I'm saying. It, it's basically just him. Arthas's whole deal emotionally is very much that he's not capable of like he always has to prove that when he doesn't he does a bad thing and screws up horribly that it's not really his fault and anybody would have done the same thing in his situation. It's a thing that he really has trouble with. But I also think it's interesting because if he resurrected Invincible, he could have fixed that, but he didn't. Yeah, I don't. But the thing is, he did fix it insofar as the horse is capable of being ridden and so forth. It's just got a little bit of that flaw remaining, just as a nod. Right, but I just think it's. I think it's interesting from a, a storytelling standpoint, right? Because maybe that is that's a manifestation of Arthas's guilt, not completely erasing it, not completely erasing the reminder. But I never noticed that oh. before. I think it's a real cool touch. Yeah, I think he actually raised the horse as a reminder. Oddly enough, I think that that's. Part of you know, keep in mind that he raised Invincible much earlier than when he tore out his own heart. So yeah, I think that was on purpose. But that's something to look out there for. Look out for if you have the Invincible mount, which I don't. Uh, but if you do, take a jump, see what it, see what it looks like. I'd be, I find it very interesting. All right, our next question comes from Nightchild. Uh, question for Blizzard Watch or Lore Watch. My guild and I were recently discussing Arthas, and it was suggested that Arthas could have avoided a lot of pain and devastation uh, if he had just endorsed social distancing in Stratholm. That made us laugh a lot. But thoughts? Uh, so, uh, ultimately, their character name is Furnight, who is a Blood Elf, sh- uh, Blood Elf Shadow Priest on Sarfang. I like giving Arthas crap as much as the next guy. In fact, I, I love doing it. I go and mm-hmm. kill him all the time just because it's funny to, to like basically you know push him through all his phases in like one go. But he honestly wasn't stupid. He was he had a lot of other problems emotionally and ego wise, but he wasn't stupid. If keeping the people of Stratholm separated by six feet would have worked, he'd have done it. The problem with the plague was it was spread by having consumed tainted grain. Initially, that's the you know then once you get attacked by a by like somebody who's turned into one of the walking dead, they can give it to you. The initial infection was caused by people eating tainted grain and they'd already eaten it. Yep. That was the problem. The problem wasn't, you know, these people might get it. The problem was these people are going to turn. I've already, and keep in mind, Arthas had already seen this. He'd already gone to, I always want to say Hearthland. I think it was actually Hearthland, but I can't remember like the town off the top of my head, but he'd gone in and then the town folk, on Moss had turned and attacked him and his people and he barely got them out. Yeah, it was, it was yeah. Hearthclan. And it was like, a, it was a complete slaughter. He lost a whole bunch of his men trying to contain the situation that couldn't be contained. And that's why, that's what really annoys me about the Stratholme encounter from the perspective of like watching Uther and Jaina act is that they weren't there at Hearthclan with him. He was clearly traumatized. He was clearly in a state where he was not thinking rationally. And he says, you know, the city must be purged because he just saw an entire town. Now, not as big as Stratholme. Stratholme is enormous. Stratholme is like the biggest city in the north. It's like not Lordaeron, but for northern, you know, it's not Lordaeron city, but for the the area of Lordaeron, the kingdom of Lordaeron, Stratholme is their biggest northern northern bastion. It'd be like, to, to use like a New York State example, imagine if... Like you saw a small town in in upstate New York get turned into like all walking dead. And then you find out that Buffalo, all of Buffalo is going to turn and you barely survived a couple thousand people. Buffalo's population is what? A couple hundred thousand? Uh, Easily, if not more. Yeah. You know, now you're looking at adjusting for Warcraft people. It's probably a good solid hundred thousand people. 
are going to turn. And you and your men are the only thing stopping this from spreading out into Lordaeron. And your options are what? You can't contain the whole city. It's too big. People are going to get out. If people who've eaten the grain get out and say get to some other town and then turn, that whole town's gone. So what are your options? Do you just do you actually try to bring up more knights and just encircle the whole area and then wait for the waves and waves and waves of dead to come out? Or do you go in and kill them while they're still vulnerable? It's it's not a great... I don't have a good solution for this. Uh, I think that's why it's one of those tragic things. Arthas did the best he could with the situation. He didn't do the right thing. Obviously, he didn't. But come up with the right thing. And then, uh, you know, that's, you've got Uther and Jaina there. And, you know, Jaina, you're in the Kirin Tor. Teleport to Dalaran and bring back some mages and put a dome around the freaking city. It's not like they haven't done it before. Yeah, you put domes around things all the freaking time. Dome the city. <laughs> then... Let them tear each other apart for a while, you know, until you can figure out something else. Would it be a huge, a huge labor? Yes, it would. But you know what I mean? It's no one even suggested any other ideas. So Arthas wasn't a dumb. He wasn't a dummy. He didn't. He didn't like just oh, just everybody stay away from each other. Did they eat the grain? Yeah, they ate the grain. Well, then that doesn't help. If they ate the grain, there's not much we can do. Sorry. Yeah. Eating the grain, you know, there's no cure to it at the time. I don't even know if there's there's cure to it now. I don't I don't know if there's any real cure to the plague of undeath. No, the only cure for the plague of undeath that we have found was the Wrathgate with that new plague that killed undead as well. Yeah, and I mean I think the only thing I can think of that even immunizes you is to get the blood of a organ. And then you get the Worgen curse, and the Worgen curse keeps you from getting the Plague of Undeath because that's also a curse. Yep. I guess you just you just got a different curse already, so no. Nope. That's that's basically it. If the Scarlets were really serious about you know stopping the undead, they'd all get Worgenized. But no, they're racist against Worgen too. Not willing to make the, the hard sacrifices, Scarlets. That's why you're gonna lose. I'm being sarcastic today, <laughs> <laughs> but in, in all sincerity. Um, and I'm taking your question seriously. I, I do get that it's mostly a joke and, you know, I, I may not be in the right headspace to laugh at it, but I did get that it was a joke, but in all seriousness, looking at it like objectively, it wouldn't have done anything. Uh, the, the big problem was that Arthas saw them already, like the grain had already gotten there when he arrived. He, they'd already eaten it. It was too late. They, they, they'd literally gotten there too late. Um, and what he did was, Certainly not the best response, but it was the only response he could come up with in the time pressure. Had they waited much longer, the people of, Lord or the people of Stratholme were going to turn. Yeah, and if you look at it in, in terms of in-game stuff, we as players experience that. If you remember the Caverns of Time, like when we're going through and doing all this stuff, we're tracking the tainted uh, grain. We're trying to destroy it. There's that realization with Arthas when you hear him go, oh, no it's already been delivered. And like, it's just like this gravity of realization that it's already been given to, to Stratholm. It's people have already consumed it. There's no way to tell who's eaten it and who hasn't like, and you, it's this absolute terrible rock and hard place position that he was put in. And it's one of the things that I've always taken umbrage with as far as the games go is that there was no other suggestions. You have arguably two of the most powerful people on Azeroth next to Arthas at this time, and neither of them could figure out another solution or even offer one. And that always sat a little weird with me. And like I said, I understand that the, like Matt, like this was, was said in jest, uh, the question, but it, it it does bring up that topic of that story, which I don't think we talk about nearly enough, is just how screwed Arthas was from the very beginning. It was just a series of making the best decision he could in the worst situation imaginable. And it's one of those things where like it made him so tragic, right? Again, why couldn't they figure anything else out? Like Rossi said, the dome. What about having priests outside to turn the undead, uh, or or having the knights encircle and, and keep the the city like locked in place? Like, why didn't they try anything else besides slaughtering? But then you look at it. What other option did Arthas have? 
keep them yeah, in their the, homes the, undead beat down doors yeah. man yeah once they turn the other problem is that once they turn it's no longer a situation of dealing with sick infectious people it's sick infectious people who will attack you and then and try and kill you. the infection yeah so it's not it's not like an actual quarantine situation where you could just quarantine them you know because you could do that if you haven't eaten the grain yet great uh you you get out you go stay somewhere else you people who've eaten the grain you know you get to live in this we lock you in and you'll probably die but at least you won't spread it to anybody but that's not the problem once they die they're going to get up and start killing people um i i think too one of the other things to think about in this whole situation uh while we're looking at the whole idea of nobody gave him any alternatives and so forth um there's a time pressure issue as well oh yeah absolutely uh in it's that you know like i said why didn't Jaina go get some mages? That's something Jaina could do because because mages can teleport around. But both Arthas and Uther were limited in terms of manpower. Arthas only had the troops he brought with him. Uther brought some troops too. That at most maybe a few hundred. Um, I, I have no idea how big Strath is, but let's 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 say it's like let's say it's ten thousand people. Arthas maybe had like less than a thousand to try and contain a potential undead army of 10,000. You know, you can't encircle the whole city mm -hmm. with that many people. You, you need more. You can't have priests. You know, where are you going to get them? Where are we going to get all these priests we're going to use to turn all the undead in the city? You know, should we just burn the city right now? Like, we could try burning the city from here, and like, hopefully the flames will destroy a lot of them. Uh, but in terms of, like, there's no solution... That, that we could come up with that doesn't require, you know, he, he needs a solution that only requires the many has. And that brings you down. And again, I am not supporting Arthas Menethil's decision. I no. do think that with Jaina there, they could have reached out to the Tour. They could have done other things. I certainly don't think that killing everybody is the right way to go. But I do, uh, to this day, I've always been annoyed with like Uther's just, I won't do it. It's like, okay, what do you got? And then he just walks away. Yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't offer anything. He doesn't say, "Arthas, listen to me. We can do this." He doesn't even say we can pull back to a safe distance and allow this to happen, as horrifying as it is, rather than attempt to go in there and risk ourselves needlessly. To which Arthas' response would probably be, "If this spreads, we're, you know, the North is gone," and he'd be right. If that spreads, the North is gone. The weird part about what Arthas did at Stratholme is it probably saved Lordaeron. Yeah, not that he, it helped because when he came back, then Lordaeron wasn't saved anymore. But Lordaeron got extra months of life because of what he did, because nobody else had any other ideas. And it must be said, a lot of the weight of this is on other people, like the Kirin Tor for letting Nerzul, just not Nerzul, um, Kelthuzad, just letting him leave Dalaran to go wandering up north to like you know discover who is calling him. The second they found out, the dude they they. They kicked him out of the Council of Six, but they knew what he was doing. You know, they knew he was doing necromancy, and he was a powerful, you know, magician. Even if you kick him off the Council, mm -hmm. he's still a powerful magician. He didn't stop knowing how to do magic, and you just let him walk off. You know, it, it's there's a lot of people to blame for what ended up happening there, not just Arthas, but absolutely staying six feet apart wouldn't have done nothing. Yep, as fun as it is to think about. Uh, I think we will move on to the next one now. Uh, this one is from our friend 6K. Question for Lorewatch. We came to Pandaria during what seems like a transit of time. Mantid were swarming early, the Mogu were facing a second uprising with the Sarok, and the Junyu were in line to be uh, Prophet Night, El uh, Night Evils? I, I don't... I, yeah, I'm going to be up front. I don't understand what you're saying there, dude. I don't either. Like, I don't know what they mean. Uh, but if you could. More. Somehow let us know. That'd be great. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and completely interrupt it. What do you think Pandaria would have looked like if we made contact 100, 1,000, or 10,000 years later? So basically, had we not shown up when we shown up? What do you think? Uh, well, if we'd shown up 10,000 years later, uh, who knows? Um, quite frankly. Uh, the thing was is that Pandaria was, was like not really self-contained. I don't know how to explain it. Like, we couldn't get in there because of the Shah. The Shah were the ones providing the mists. The mists were created by the last sovereign emperor. 
who used the Shah itself to make the mists. As he admits, when you when you actually finally destroy the heart uh, and you visit him, he, he admits, I failed. I, I, you know, this is what I did. This was my solution. I, I was afraid of what was happening in the world, so I isolated us and I put a, I put Pandaria in, in the mists using the Shah. That's what I did. So, yeah, it was a delaying tactic. It wasn't an actual solution to their problems. What would have happened? Uh, that's a good question. The Mogu... Saying the Mogu were facing a second uprising with the Sorok, um, not really. No, it's more like the Mogu were actually attacking. The Mogu were... Are. The Mogu were doing a lot of weird stuff during that time. There was a lot going on for them. Which... Yeah, I mean... Keep in mind, too, that the, the Mogu's main goal during a lot of that... We forget this because we fight him in a raid, but Li Shen wasn't alive mm -hmm. until the Zandalar, of all people, Zul. get yeah get his body together and res him using ancient secrets he imparted. Uh, and yeah, as Joe, Joe pointed out, that was Zul's doing. This is That's a Zul move. So had we not been there, would he have been woken up? Yeah, probably. The the, pan, the Zandalar was still going to be there. Uh, if we hadn't shown up, then he would have probably conquered Pandaria. Because the Mogu, the Mogu are unified military force, and the under the under Li Shen, they they did it before. The only reason that the Pandaran managed to rebel against the Mogu the last time was because Li Shen had been dead for a while, and they had like a whole series of worse emperors. But with Li Shen in charge, that's not an issue. Um, he probably would have united the Mogu and taken over Pandaria. Even the Rajani would have worked for him because he could claim, you know, I have the power of Raden. And and don't forget, at that time, like, even when you're going through the raid, they did. Because Keeper Raden was in the basement of that entire, like, that raid. He was there being held captive, his power being drained from him. Yeah, and Lee, Lee, we're the Lee ones Shen that free ripped his heart out. Yeah, Lee we're Shen the ones that freed him. Yeah, absolutely. And if you, not, you you beat Li Shen, then you're the you're the reason Raiden was not in there in the basement anymore. Yeah, I think that's really where you got to focus if you start looking at this what if scenario. If we hadn't gotten there, it really would have been the Mogu show. If for no other reason between the help of the, the, the Zandalari, the help of Zul specifically, bringing back Lei Shen, Mantids wouldn't have been able to stand up to the Mogu. Uh, the Pandarans wouldn't have been able to stand up to the Mogu. We stop a lot of that. Uh, that entire continent would be back under the thumb of the Mogu. And I know there are some people that have been arguing that that might not have been a terrible thing. It would have prevented... Uh, Yasiraj from coming back. Uh, there wouldn't have been necessarily all of that Shah infestation because we wouldn't have broken the. Oh uh, no! Statue. Oh no! Okay. I, this no, is people are. Oh, this no. is, I've heard people argue this. I'm not saying I agree, but go ahead. Go go for the, it. Go, the Mogu did not treat the Shah and the Shah infestation with anything like respect. Mm -hmm. The Mogu were the ones who created the Divine Bell. Mm hmm. Divine Bell summons Shaw energies. With the Mogu in charge, they just started using the Divine Bell against other people. And you think they're going to be satisfied with just conquering Pandaria? There's absolutely no way that Mogu would be deeply offended by the world as it is now. Oh yeah, absolutely. The the, the, the other Titan Forge did what? The other the as soon as they got the con the continent under their control. They would have gotten rid of the mists because, you know, they don't have any need for that deal. That leash, you know, Shao Hao made that deal to save his people from what he thought was going to be the end of the world. But the Mogu would have wanted to reach out to other Titan facilities. In fact, the, the reason that the Mogu and the Zandalari first alliance didn't work out the way they wanted was because they made a move on the, the Forge of Origination in Old Doom. And caused the 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 Tolvir of Aldoom to use the forge at them. Mm -hmm. So that's in their history. That's a thing you know. Li Shen would have been very interested in because he wasn't alive when that happened. Keep that in mind. That happened after his reign. He would have been very interested in hearing about that. 
And Zul was not exactly the kind of guy who would balk from any power source. He isn't like he remember, he doesn't turn to Gahoon so much as attempt to exploit Gahoon. He wants to use Gahoon as a replacement for the, the various Zandalari Loa because he thinks they're too weak to serve. But if the stuff in Pandaria had worked out, it would have been Lee Shen he was trying to betray. Not you know he would have he would have switched paymasters from from uh, King Rastakhan real fast. He was oh, looking yeah. for a way. He was looking for his own power base. That's what he wanted. So there's a lot of possibilities inherent there. The the Sorak are a joke. They're a discarded. They people. were never a threat. Yeah. Did did they successfully rebel against the Mogu? Yes, but they were rebelled against the Mogu after several really terrible emperors in a row. That's the thing to remember. The the Mogu who that got rebelled against by the various peoples of Pandaria were not the Mogu led by Li Shen. Li Shen, when he led the Mogu, led them directly, and he led them with the power of a Titan Keeper in his veins. He was literally using Raden's power to, to, to conquer them. Um, yeah, it would have been a big deal. Uh, would they have been able to conquer the world? No. Uh, quite frankly... Anytime anybody comes along and says they're going to conquer Azeroth, it, it's like, say what you want about the Horde Alliance conflict, but it's very much like the best Goku-style training simulator you could possibly have. Like, those people are continuously trying to kill each other with the worst things they can think of. And then you show up, and it's like, it's literally like sticking your hand into a into like a... It's like, oh, I'm going to stick my hand into this little koi pond, and it's full of piranha that shoot bees out of their eyes. It's like, yeah, I got no fingers left. That's that's what trying to fight the Alliance and the Horde is like. As soon as like there's a group, there's a common thing, you know, old gods, the Burning Legion, whatever, we don't care. It's like it's like two honey badgers in a box, and you're sticking <laughs> your face in to see what's going on. So yeah, no, I don't think the Mogul could have beaten, could have taken over Azeroth. I think they would have lost. Um, I don't. I don't give anybody good odds on beating like the Horde and Alliance because those 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 guys is crazy. A little bit. Uh, I can't use the proper term. I can't use the proper phrase because it would be full of obscenities. But you know the the meme, and that's like just imagine instead of like you know honey badger, it's like an orc and a human standing next to each other. The orc, the human is handing the orc a weapon because there's a crazy bear here. You know what I mean? The second a crazy bear shows up, the the, the Horde and Alliance start working together. Then they immediately go back to trying to kill each other as soon as the crazy bear is gone. But, yeah, no. But I definitely think it would have been a situation where the Mogu dominated Pandaria. Possibly that the, the, the Mantid would have continued to hold on to the part that they had because the Mogu never wanted it in the first place. The Mogu were like, you can keep that creepy, crazy, disgusting bug area. We'll just build a big wall and you can live over there on the other side of the big wall. That's how the, the Mogu always treated the Mantid, and I don't think it would have changed. I don't think they would have wanted to try and take over the Mantid areas just because of the sheer volume of numbers that the Mantid have. Um, they don't want to have to fight the Swarm because it's too much. It's, it's too time-consuming. But they certainly aren't afraid to fight the Swarm. Um, keep in mind, the, the Mogu are the guys... Who, if you're a Tauren, you can thank the Mogu that you exist. Yep. Because the Mogu shaped the ancestors of the Tauren into the beings that they, like the Tonka. They made them bigger and stronger and better fighters. That's because the Mogu did that, because they wanted to use them as literally de just throw them at the Mantid. Like, you stay over there and you fight those Mantid for that horrible area nobody wants anyway. That's the origins of all Tauren people on Azeroth, from the, the Yongal to the, to the, oh, bloody heck, I can't remember the ones up north. It's the Tonka. Tonka. Yep. Yeah, the Yongol, the Tonka, the, the Tarhe, all of them are descended from from peoples that were picked up by the Mogu and changed into being more into being more fearsome, purely because the Mogu didn't want to have to bother with the Mantid and their endless numbers. Uh, and that's very similar to what happened to the trolls fighting the Akir. Uh, when the trolls fought the Akir, it was the numbers. It's always the numbers when you fight old god minions. Yeah, which is why they were so dangerous when they had the Black Empires, because they could literally just spew new minions forth, right? Yep, like endless endless waves. That's why the uh, Titans did what they did and created the facilities they did to match that. Like, look at the the what uh, the engine of creation. Uh, 
Why can't you think of the the one in the facility? Forge of the Makers. The Forge, Forge of, of the Makers. makers and the you. engine of Knowledge Shaw. Yeah. You look at those, they were literally designed to just spew out an endless sea of constructed minions and warriors to go fight. Like, that was the only way they could do battle with them. So you're right on the money there. But I don't know. It is fun to think about at least a little bit of how things would be different had we not gone and disrupted things. I you have think to wonder, we- like, what would have happened? I mean, if we'd never gone to Pandaria. So we, you've got to basically the end of Cataclysm. And then we don't go to Pandaria. So we just keep fighting our little crappy resource war for a while. And then the Legion shows up. Like, does the Legion show up? If we don't go to Pandaria, do we go to Draenor? Like, what would Garrosh have done if he hadn't found all that weird stuff on Pandaria? Would he have found something on, like, mainland Azeroth? Like, would, would, would what would have happened? Would we be doing an Old God expansion way earlier? Would he have gone down to Silithus and, like, gone to C- the Cthune's corpse and pulled out an eyeball and used that? You know, it's, it's interesting to think about what would have happened because you, you have to take the Horde and Alliance as they were at the end of Cataclysm. And you have to continue forward with it without Pandaria, which is where a lot of stuff happened. That's why it intrigues me in particular in regards to like Garrosh in particular. Like you hit you hit my question right before I got to it. Uh, We're on the same wavelength there. Like what would have happened with him? Would he have found something else? Would he have been approached still by uh, a certain black dragon uh, with this idea in his head, or, or would there ever been a, a scheme to begin with? Would the Iron Horde have been a thing that still would have been tried to be accomplished? Because the Iron Horde portion, like what happened on Warlords of Draenor, yes, it sort of happened because Garrosh was sort of held in chains and, and that offer was made, but would that offer still have been made without it? Would the events of Pandaria, if nothing, none of that ever happened, would a bronze dragon still have shown up and said, yo, I could show you how to get a whole army. Like, it'd be great. We can go back and see your dad. Like, would that have been a thing that still happened? Would Garrosh still be alive? Would would he not have gone so full dark mode? Like, he was already most of the way there, to be honest. But, like, would he Yeah, have- but I, the Garrosh of, like, the Cataclysm, there's one part where he, where somebody blows up a druid school in Stone Talon. And when this is presented to Garrosh as a, something done in his name, he flips out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He, he is furious. He's like, that's not, they weren't a military target. That's no, there's no honor in that. Kill, blowing them up, you blew up a school. And he kills that guy. He, yep. like, which I think is, you know, the bad commander blames his subordinates. But nevertheless, the point is, Garrosh had scruples at one point. And it's only as he becomes more desperate and he's more exposed to these Garrosh's big thing was he loved weird surprise attacks. Yeah, he really did. Didn't he? He's he tactically very sound. Uh, Garrosh was a very good military leader and we often forget this, but there's a reason that Garrosh was ultimately successful up in Northrend. Um, was he, he wasn't always like smart. Like he didn't always do, you know, like there was no reason to fight the Alliance in the first place up there. He just did it because he didn't like the Alliance, but he had no real reason to do it. But that being taken out of the equation, he's behaving like an, he's behaving like he thinks an orc hero should. His tactics are often unconventional and brilliant. He does weird things that you have to like really accommodate for in Wolfheart. He like brings down beasts from Northrend and just unleashes them in Ashendale. And the alliance is scrambling, and they wouldn't—they would have lost if not for Varian and the Worgen, which is something that Garrosh hadn't actually anticipated. And, and quite frankly, one of my biggest shames, my the biggest regrets of World of Warcraft history, is that we will never have a definitive Garrosh Varian fight. I mean, we could have one in Shadowlands. Eh, I don't think we're going to see that. <laughs> but. That's one of the things that is always kind of I'll be a little sad about for forever. Um, we'll never have a definitive who'd win Garage Varian fight. I'll be upfront and th- and say that I think Varian would have won. I tend because to agree. Because while Garage was stronger, and I, I totally am okay with saying that Garage was physically stronger than Varian, quite a bit physically stronger. Varian's still very strong, and more importantly, Varian knows how to fight people who get mad. Mm-hmm. 
which I mean, his whole gladiatorial experience would st- would serve him well. I would put Varian out ahead in a fight with either Garage or Thrall, in just in terms of just fighting them, he would have won. Uh, but he wouldn't have outpowered them because no, uh, both of them are like another six inches taller than he is. Um, they're both massive. This definitely would have been a situation where he would have had to outmaneuver them. But I believe he could have done so. But that being said, Garrosh wasn't stupid. And people forget that. They forget because they, they just see the brute force attempts. But they don't realize as those brute force attempts were always the setup. Garrosh hit you with his fist to distract you from what he had coming up behind you. Or to see how you would react so that he could plan accordingly. Yeah. Um, the, the fight, the Makora with Cairn is a perfect example. He tries to scare Cairn, thinking he can make him back down. And when that doesn't work, you can see on Garash's face in the book, in the story, Garash is visibly like, oh, I need to shift this. I can't overpower him. Because Cairn is a tauren. Karen is much, much physically stronger than Garage. He doesn't have the endurance because he, the dude's super old. But, you know, if, if Karen put his hand on Garage's head, he could have crushed it. Oh, easily. Yeah, just with one hand, he could have just go, and then Garage would be dead. Uh, Garage is not going to let that happen because, as I said, not, not an idiot. So if you change everything around like that, you just start really thinking, what would Garage's tactics have been? The reason Garage ended up going overboard was for three reasons. One, he found in Pandaria a way to manipulate the elements. And two, he found the heart of Yashraj. And three, he found the divine bell. Garrosh wasn't didn't worry about corruption because it wasn't fell stuff. He believed he had dealt with that problem. So all the old god things were just it was just power to be used. He wasn't going to drink anything. He wasn't going to pledge himself to anything. The only thing he was pledged to was his people. And he never once stopped it. There's a great bit. Do you remember it from the uh, short? The intro to the last patch of Mists of Pandaria where um, Taran Zhu fights Garrosh? Oh, yeah. No, I vaguely remember that, yeah. You're meddling with forces beyond your can, and Garrosh says something. And uh, Taran Zhu says, your father also meddled with forces beyond his can. Where is he now? And that, that was the thing that I really feel like they, they wasted an effort. And to some degree, they wasted this storyline in Mr. Pandaria by not showing it more directly from Grosh's perspective. But Grosh was very much falling down the same path as his father, and he didn't see it. And that's why I honestly felt like it was a shame that he died in, in uh, Warlords of Draenor. Because I feel like you can tell... There's there's an ambivalence there in everything he does. Like he wants to go back and conquer Azeroth. He wants because he thinks he's right. And there's a there's a moment where like in the book there's a whole thing about how I think it's a short story, not actually the book, but it's a short story where where Garrosh basically doesn't tell his father when he's talking to Grom. He doesn't show his father the stuff that Thrall did to help him. He edits it because yep. he doesn't want his father to know about Thrall. It's really fascinating, the, the jealousy and the paranoia and the, and the anger towards Thrall. In a lot of ways, when Garrosh blames Thrall during their fight, he's not lying. He might be wrong, he may be skewed, but he's saying what he thinks happened to the best of his ability. And wow, I've really gone off track here. But I don't think I have, because I do think it's tied into everything. What, what would happen, you know? Yeah, and I don't think you're off base. And I think that it all ties together, right? Because... Honestly, it, it does feed into it because a lot of that stuff, a lot of the the resolution that we see comes from the events of Pandaria. So eliminating those, that's why I think it centers around Garrosh. And it's not just because I'm a Garrosh fanboy or anything like that. It's it literally just because he is sort of that centerpiece when you really think about it. Uh, it changes the entire scope of that expansion and the next two that follow and it's it's one of those moments that like you don't stop and think about it until you do and then it's just there's too many things here uh we could probably do an entire special on the garage hell scream that could have been uh and if you want to hear that let us know but i think we're gonna have to leave this one sit for right now and i think we're because we're running we are out of time uh 
So Blizzard Watch is made possible due to the generous contributions at patreon.com slash Blizzard Watch. Uh, your continued support means this podcast site and community is able to thrive and grow. Blizzard Watch supporters enjoy exclusive benefits like early access to the podcast, a better chance at having your question answered on the podcast or the queue, and an ads-free site experience. Uh, I do want to thank everybody for sending those questions. Make sure you continue to send them in, again, either through our Discord uh, or podcast at blizzardwatch.com. And uh, we'll see you next week. <laughs>